If it's blooped on TV, it's not blooped here. You've been warned. Hey y'all, I'm Jen. I'm from Oakland and I'm a queer black feminist scholar. This is Darren, hailing from the mean streets of Anaheim. I'm an introvert, a novelist, and a nerd. We're early 30-somethings with three kids and over a decade of marriage. This is a podcast about the realities of blackness and adult life. We do adult differently. This is That Black Couple. Greetings. Grab your ice-cold water with a lemon wedge. Our nine-year-old said not to do water, but we think it's actually critically important that you stay hydrated and purified in this winter time. Yeah, people say only in the heat you need water, but you really need in the cold too. Yes, and you don't want those lips to crack, or that skin to crack, or your hair to get dry, or your edges to break off. There's only so much Jamaican black castor oil in the world, so drink your water. Drink it up. Drink it up. This is That Black Couple. I'm Jen. I'm Darren. Are you? I am. You are? I am. This is episode 11. And before we get started, I want to make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at That BLK Couple, on Facebook at That Black Couple, and look us up on the internets at www.thatblackcouple.com. You can also support our podcast and website by becoming a patron at www.patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N, dot com forward slash water cooler convos. That's W-A-T-E-R-C-O-O-L-E-R-C-O-N, V as in Victor, O-S. Or you can give us a one-time donation at www.paypal.me forward slash water cooler convos. We ask that you pledge at least $5 a month, but please believe all donations are welcome. You can stream episodes on Google Play, Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. Um, make sure you rate us high because, I mean, well, why would you not want to rate us high? Because why? Because this podcast is amazing. It's dope. And we deserve it. Also, we only have high ratings, so we don't want <laughs> Don't break the streak. Don't, don't, don't be that guy. Don't do it. So last thing before we get started on episode 11, it's important to note that there are only 12 episodes in this first inaugural season of That Black Couple podcast. That means that after this one, there's only one left. We still have some bonus content and probably some videos that we'll post during the break, but we're going to be on hiatus starting January 1st and lasting until February. We'll be back for Black History Month. So don't at me. Don't at me. Don't at me. I'm on break. I'm on vacation. Today's episode is called Commodifying Black Pain. In the First Things First section, we'll talk about the ways that mainstream media operates to exacerbate and benefit from the public performance of black pain. Then, in the conversation, we'll discuss what black liberation looks like given this type of system. And finally, in the reflection, We'll discuss our experiences with internalized anti-blackness and whether it be from us or others, how we can possibly manage in that. We have written a few articles at watercoolercombos.com covering today's topics, and we'll cover some of the sources from around the web that we thought were pertinent to today's conversation. 
We'll make sure to drop all those links in the show notes. So, let go. Let go. Okay. So. So. So, so, so. So, so, so. All right. So, mainstream media, I, I feel like we, we've talked about this concept a lot about how black pain is really just commodified in the, in the public sphere and how it's kind of just turned into entertainment for so many people. Right. And reaching back a little bit, when we were first talking about this episode, the thing that really came to mind for me was Wendy Williams when she fainted on air. Right. And I'm going to kind of outline it for people if you somehow didn't hear about this. It was such a big news story. I don't know how you didn't, but just to make sure we all have the facts straight. So Wendy Williams was doing a live show for Halloween. Um, It's a big thing on her show. I I mean, I don't really watch it, but I've heard that like Halloween is a big thing for her. And she does like a lot of costumes and it's like a big extravaganza. Mm -hmm. And so for this Halloween episode, I guess she had done a couple costume changes. And I think this was toward the end of the episode. And she was now dressed up as um, the Statue of Liberty. Yeah. And so she, I think they came back from break, and she was she was talking. I've seen the I've seen the video on YouTube. Right. I'm sure it's there, like immortalized forever now. Right. And so she she was started talking, and she got like really visibly disoriented, uh, and she was standing behind this podium, and her eyes got really wide, and she started to kind of wobble a little bit, and she fainted. Like, right. I mean, this was on this was real live TV, like no delay. So if you were watching the show. You saw her really just faint on live TV, and I think they like cut to commercial really quick, right? And they try to get her back together, and they and actually came back and finished the show, which was amazing because I wouldn't. Have. I mean, if you fainted, I mean, usually, my ass would be laid out. I'm yeah, going home. It's a wrap. This, I'm going that's the end. I'm going home. <laughs> so, but it, I mean, it was a big deal. I mean, it was all over social media. People were talking about it. I think people were saying that they thought that she was having like a stroke. They were trying to say it was all type of health issues. And so afterwards, Wendy Williams came out and she really gave a lot of press interviews and was basically saying, no, what happened was I overheated in my costume. Right. And she she went through and meticulously went through like moment by moment what was happening in her head as she was standing in front of cameras and she was getting really hot and she could she knew she was going to faint and she was trying to figure out, okay, I'm about to faint, have this big podium in front of me, I'm tall. Right. So if I fall and this podium falls on me, that's going to be bad. And so she's talking about this split second moments where she's like, deciding how to fall, like how to fall to like not seriously hurt herself, not not possibly, you know, die on air. Right. Right. Like really terrifying moments. Or right. Thoughts. Right. But on the flip side of this, what happened is people saw this image of her and her eyes getting wide and fainting. And it was immediately captured and turned to a meme. I know. I mean, it exploded all over. That's the how I saw. It. I saw gifts on Twitter. Right. I, I, yeah, I saw the memes before I even knew what Absolutely. the story was. Absolutely. Right? Because it just it was flipped and turned around that quickly. Right. And I think this is such a great example of how the plain, the pain of black people is just really just taken, turned into a product, and then reproduced for the whole world to consume and sadly in some cases by black people right like and let's be clear here like she is a kind of like taboo you know she's a uh not very well liked person in certain circles Mm -hmm. you know she has people who love her and there's people who hate Wendy Williams and so I'm not sitting here being like oh well you know we just love her I don't have any personal feelings I don't I don't know her but Let's be clear here. She's also a a woman, a cisgender heterosexual woman who's off, often misgendered, yep. um, and you know she's also, often called a man. 
Um, and there's memes out there that are intentionally misgendering her um, it, 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 to undermine her own identity and the way that she identifies and who she is. So it's not like, you know, this is this kind of memeing of her pain is kind of this one-off experience. It's actually a long-term thing. And I would, I would say it's rooted in massage noir, this kind of hatred of, of not just Wendy Williams, the person, but also this kind of, um, this kind of feeling toward prominent black women, especially taller women, um, especially, you know, more muscular women. We've seen this happen to Serena Williams as well. We've seen this happen to Nene Leakes. This has happened to me. You know, I'm six foot four. I've been six foot four since I was 12 years old. So, you know, this is an experience that that happens, yep. um, unfortunately. Uh, it's transphobic. It's misogynistic. And I think what gets me about it is like, whether you like Wendy Williams or not, to take the moment, and I've, I've fainted. You know, I've fainted a lot. Right, having, so you, you know what that experience right, is like. Right, right. And it's it's terrifying. Like that moment when you're like, shit, I'm about to fall, right? And you're yeah. like, and you're like legit trying to figure out, okay, I'm about to, uh, I'm about to go. And it's getting dark and my vision's fucked up, but I don't want to hit my head, right? Because, you know, that could be it. I could potentially not wake up from that. Or, you know, yeah, being tall and falling is really scary because you, you fall in layers. You know, you fall and it's like part of your body falls and then like 10 minutes later, the rest of your body falls. That shit is terrifying. So, I mean, I totally, when I saw that meme, I was, I was scared. It made me really sad because I could see the look on her face and I could tell immediately looking at her face, the terror that she was experiencing. And I think what gets me is like, whether you like somebody or not, right? So whether we love Wendy Williams or we hate Wendy Williams, and I'm aware, you know, that a lot of people don't love her or whatever, but I feel like if we know that there's a system in place, right? The system in place that says that, you know, black bodies are expendable and disposable, um, that black bodies are not as important, that black women are not really women, um, that they don't get to be a part of the cult of domesticity, that they don't conform to femininity in the same ways. Or if we if we know that there's a system that says that, uh, you know, black people are inherently less human or whatever it is, right? And we know the system exists. How do we simultaneously, simultaneously laugh when we see black people in pain? I just don't understand how we can then see black people's pain as something that we that we enjoy or that is a source of entertainment You're, you were talking about it and i was thinking in, in a in a weird way it's almost like a form of self-hate yeah like like internalized like real self-hate internalized like, oppression like i go through hard times and people laugh at me or they don't right. value like the struggle that i go through or the hardships or the pain or 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 my tears and so that means when I see another black person going through a similar or different struggle, right. something hard, something painful, something terrifying, I then can also look at it and say, well, no one valued mine. Right. So that that means I don't have to value yours. Right. Which, you know, as we said out loud, doesn't make any sense. Right. It should be the exact opposite. It right. should be people didn't value mine, so I'm going to make sure that I value yours. Absolutely. Right. We should be in support of each other instead of trying to tear each other down. Right. Right. And so- it's just so confusing to me because even as you're talking about it and you're talking about Wendy Williams and, and like you're saying, she's a polarizing character. You know, she's one of those like lover or hater people. Um, a lot of people just feel like it's either one way or the other. Right. But that shouldn't come into this it conversation. It shouldn't even matter. It, right. shouldn't, it shouldn't matter if she's like the worst person on earth. Right. It shouldn't matter if she's an angel. No matter what it is, 
any person feeling that type of pain, being in that type of a situation, shouldn't have that that moment taken right. from them. And through linked fate, through this right. kind of kinship, I would think that black people should have a higher likelihood of actually giving a shit that she's fainting on camera. But like, I think there's another example, and this is the one that got me. So, uh, really recently, uh, you know, Omarosa gets kicked out of the White House. Yep. Right? It is kind of funny. It's funny. And people are cheering. <laughs> listen, listen. Omarosa, I, again, she's another polarizing character. <laughs> and I mean, we will always love her for her, like, her Im- immaculate read of oh Bethany Frankel. Um, listen, and- listen. <laughs> if you have not, if you have not seen Omarosa on the short-lived Bethany show, when Bethany had a talk show, I think it lasted one season. Yes. She had Omarosa as a guest. If you have not seen that segment air. That shit is funny. I actually... Once we are done, once you listen to the entirety of this podcast, <laughs> please make the next stop be YouTube to find that. That shit's hilarious. Because it will give you your whole entire life. She okay. called her so mediocre. Like, to I her was, face. She basically was like, look, you get to be mediocre and you still get a show. Oh, my God. And, and I'm and I'm amazing and I don't have a show. And listen, <laughs> listen, and I don't like Omarosa. But shit. But hell. But, I mean, that's the first instance of Beckery. I mean, she called out Beckery. She was like, look at this Beckery. You know, she was like, here it is. To her face. To her face. So, 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 you know, you can feel how you want about Omarosa, but I, I, I got to give her, you know, credit for that. Um, but she gets kicked out of the White House, right? And so, you know, I'm not going to lie. I thought the shit was kind of funny. I did. I was like, girl, of course. Of course you get kicked out of the White House. Of, of course that happens, right? Now, did I go and make memes about it? Did I make some long, you know, Omarosa posts? Did I write 800 words and send it off to the Atlantic? No, I didn't. I'm not that pressed. I'm not that pressed. And I'm also not that interested in getting paid to talk shit about a black woman. Exactly. Not interested. So the the thing that got me is, of course, of course, Leslie Jones, right? (laughs) Leslie Jones here for us whenever we need to get a woman, a black woman to trash a black woman, we can count on Leslie Jones. So, so by the way, she has me blocked on Twitter, so this is fine. So <laughs> that makes, that makes it, okay. it makes it okay. So, so, so she gets pulled out of the white house and immediately Leslie Jones, who is the token black person, um, token black girl on uh, SNL does this skit. And basically it's like the, quintessential omarosa trying to get back in the white house lying about how she got kicked out no i didn't get fired i left blah 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 looking really desperate and basically you know making fun of omarosa and that really hit me some type of way because i'm looking like wait this is the same leslie jones right this is the same leslie jones who yes is the token black woman so let's remember that who also has been openly battling racist designers who won't style her for shows right mm-hmm. let's remember that she's also the person who's been battling against twitter trolls who've been harassing her and had to actually get off of twitter at one point right same yep. person okay same one. also somebody who had stalkers who were hacking into her phone and releasing new pictures of her correct mm-hmm. okay so this is all the same leslie jones who's literally been battling massage noir in hollywood since she got on snl yes yep and has been tokenized on snl and been basically forced to play every black person Except Beyonce. Right. Which, you remember, the subtext of that was Keenan was playing the black women. Right. And he basically came to work one day and said, I'm not playing women anymore. I'm not playing any more black women. <laughs> you need to hire a black woman for the cast to play black women. Keenan said, no more. And so they hired two black women 
Because Keenan said, I'm not putting on more wigs. That's a whole other episode, though. I'm sorry, my abs. So, I'm sorry for distracting you. Oh, shit, my abs. That's a whole other episode. Shit, not the truth. Okay. So, correct. That's, That's how it happened. So... So Leslie Jones goes on SNL, this show that has a predominantly white audience, that has a pretty much all white cast, that just had their first black comedian, that's E-N-N-E, Tiffany Haddish, to come on the show like ever, just recently. Mm -hmm. And she goes on there to make fun of a black woman. Even though as a black woman, she has been consistently harassed for being a black woman in hollywood am i understanding it correctly i think you got that right so it's like a turducken of internalized massage noir yep okay this is the same woman who did a skit like a year and a half ago two years ago where she was like lebron ah, shaquille ah, implying that if she was a slave in the right time in the moment when you got raped by your slave master that she'd be really popular, even though she said that she can't get a date now, but back then she'd get all the men because she's big and she'd make LeBrons through slave rape. Right, because she would be forced to get all the she'd men. She'd be forced. Because she'd be chosen. To be raped right. by other slaves and slave masters so that she could make ah, Shaquille and <laughs> ah, LeBron. <laughs> I'm going to have nightmares of that sound. And ah, Dwayne Wade. <laughs> Am I remembering this correctly? Yeah. I, I and black right. Twitter dragged the fuck out of her. Yep. That's when I got blocked. Um, actually, I think I blocked it another time too. It's some other point. Michael Shea involved. But so, 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 so I want to make sure I'm understanding. I want to make sure that I'm understanding that even when we understand our own personal experiences with anti-blackness and massage noir, even when we have our own personal life experiences where we can point to that and say, hey, they are harassing me. They are excluding me. They are belittling me or whatevering me because of the color of my skin and my gender or class or sexuality or whatever it may be or size or age or ability or whatever. We still, we still think it's okay to perform anti-blackness for the purposes of placating white supremacy. Mm-hmm. And I'm just. <sighs> I mean, that's that's exactly what she did. And that's exactly what she kind of continues to do. That's somewhat her role on the show. I know every time we, we happen to catch the show, we always talk. Whenever we see her on screen, we go, here she go again. She's going to be loud. She's going to be screaming at something. Or she, you know, she's going to be some kind of, kind of black stereotype. Because she was basically brought on the show to be that. But that's my thing. Is like, I want better for her. Right. And I also want better for us. Leslie Jones actually is funny. She is funny. Her ass she's is fucking funny. funny. And she's been funny since Comic View. That bitch is funny. We've been watching her. We've been watching her. And black people have loved her for a long time. And Wendy Williams, I don't think that she's fucking trash. I really don't think she's trash. I mean, I think she's doing real shit out here. I mean, she's not super popular, but is she really that different than like Charlemagne and the Breakfast Club? I don't think she's that but, much different. But she's also in her 50s. Right, right. So I, I'm really puzzled as to how, and we're going to get into this, I think, on the next segment too, about how people kind of cherry pick the way that they kind of believe that people deserve justice or humanity or yeah. grace. And I think that's what we're really getting at today is like this process of commodifying black pain, um, whether it comes from outside of black community 
communities, like the black outside of the black diaspora, or that it comes from within, there is this kind of process of picking. Like who gets who who do we who do we fight for? Who gets to be seen as honorable? Who gets to be seen as worthy? And I think when we start really like digging down and drilling down into those questions, we don't actually have really good answers for them. And I really hope we can kind of get at that today. I hope so. I hope so too. Thank you for listening. We are the proud founders of watercoolerconvos.com, a platform at the intersections of blackness, culture, and adulting. We started that black couple to dive deeper into the issues facing young black millennial folks navigating the anti-black, anti-queer, white supremacist world today. This podcast is supported by donations and patronage of our listeners and readers of our blog. You should head over there and check out some of the content when you get a chance. If you would like to become a monthly subscriber or patron and help fund our content, sign up at www.patreon.com forward slash watercoolerconvos. Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com. Please consider giving $5 or $10 per month to help us build our platform and grow our organization. We really want to hire new writers and social media people, y'all, but we can't do that without your help. You can also give a one-time donation at www.paypal.me forward slash watercoolerconvos. All donations are welcome. You can stream the show on Google Play, Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. When you listen, please consider hitting that heart button, sharing an episode, giving us a five-star rating, and leaving some dope-ass comments. This helps us with our page views and also gives us more listeners for the show. Thank you so much. Let's get back to the show. All right. So it's time for the conversation. You ready? I'm always ready. Oh, stop it. So I think we're going to have to have a conversation really about what black liberation really looks like. And I've been really thinking about this for a long time. Um, a friend of mine, Ashley, asked me this on the phone a couple um, a couple weeks ago. And I was really thinking about it. And it took me back to an article by my friend, Hari who is the managing editor of Black Youth Project, they wrote an article about Rashawn Brazel, who was murdered. Um, He was a queer young man, and he actually was decapitated um, Mm. and was, uh, I think he was 19 years old, and it was a horrible, a vicious, vicious murder. Um, And the way that his body was disposed of um, was really tragic. So I don't want to rehash the whole thing because it's really, really, really uh, vulgar and very difficult to kind of uh, walk through. But the the overall uh, conversation is that, you know, this is a black queer man who was uh, murdered by someone within our community. Right. And how do we how do we start thinking about black liberation how do we think about things like prison abolition how do we think about things like restorative justice and transformative justice when you know there are people who are being irrevocably harmed within black communities right so i want to read a part of it um 
from Harith Peace. It says, for prison and police abolitionists like myself, moments like these present perhaps the greatest dissonance we ever encounter in our politics. Cisgender, heterosexual black men especially remain a substantial threat to their queer, trans, femme, and female counterparts. And prison slash the police sometimes seem to be the only answers available when there is such a lack of accountability amongst the people who commit violence against us. And I think that is so true, right? It, I, I, so I actually like helped edit this piece and it was really hard. I was sitting there reading it and I was trying to think through like, you know, what does this, what does this look like? What is, and I'm, and this is in reference to Wendy Williams and to Leslie Jones. And with respect to this idea that we're all living up underneath the same system, right? If we truly believe that we're all living up underneath the same system, then we can't cherry pick the way that we offer grace and humanity and justice and liberation. Right. Right. So that means that when we believe that all black lives matter, that includes the raggedy ones, that includes the ashy ones, that includes Tyrese, that -hmm. includes Chris Brown, that includes R. Kelly, that includes Wendy Williams, and it includes Leslie Jones, and it includes me and you. Right. All of us. Okay. So if that's the case, then how do we enact that form of personal struggle in public or do we? And I think I think people don't really want to think through, like through all the the true depths of what that means. Like people will say Black Lives Matter, and they'll they'll understand that that means all Black Lives Matter, and all those people that you listed, they'll understand. Oh, those people are all black, so yeah, they're Black Lives Matter. But I don't think they like to think and go all the way down into the rabbit hole of what that actually means. Right. Like, what does it mean when we say Black Lives Matter? What What is true? Like, like you said. Like this whole segment is, is titled, what does black liberation actually look like? Because it includes liberation for all of those people. Right. And then if we live up under a system that commodifies black pain, right? So we live up under a system that says that when Wendy Williams faints on television, you want to be the first person that makes the meme because then you go viral on Twitter. Or if there's a death in your community and you videotape it, you want to go viral by selling that video or getting that video out. Or somebody is harmed in your classroom or at the local mall or whatever, and you have that footage, you want to go viral. You want to basically sell black pain to a larger, predominantly white mainstream media body to help basically commodify us. And that doesn't that that doesn't that doesn't help us get any closer to liberation either. And it doesn't actually keep us in line with ideas of accountability either right so we have all these cases where there's been footage or there's been like witnesses or whatever and it doesn't mean that the people who are actually committing transgressions against us are harming us actually are taken to task it doesn't mean that they're actually you know put in jail but then you think like wait but jail is that the answer right so this this is a really hard circular argument it's a really difficult thing and i and whenever i think about this leslie jones wendy williams thing i always think about how do we or even tyrese this was a big one people were really mad at me because i posted online about tyrese and how i wasn't about to just start laughing at him like when he started posting all those videos and stuff and like crying i was just like this dude looks sad like i just felt bad for him and some people were like you know what he's an abuser and you know he he harms folks and you know all this stuff and that stuff absolutely is true right so i read articles after after I posted that, some people sent me links and I'm like, that's horrible. That's absolutely horrible. He's also really anti-black. He's also really anti-black woman. He's a, he's a major misogynoirist, yep. right? But at the same time, I'm like, 
but I also believe in justice for all black people. So I'm not sure how to navigate that situation. Well, because because if you really believe in justice for all black people, it means that you don't throw black people away. Right. That's one thing that, that we've said ad nauseum, at least in our household and our you know personal conversations, where we as black people, we can't throw each other away. Right. Because we know we know the harm that we all experience. We know the world that we all face together. And so if we're throwing each other away, well, then we're all just thrown away. Exactly. Right? No one is here for us but us. Right. And the, and the thing is, and that's some, Kumba, that's some Kumbahi River Collective stuff you just said, by the way. You, <laughs> I know. You that's my low-key academic life. You're on your Kumbahi today. <laughs> but also, like, you know, I think about this as a system, right? And I always, you know, you know we're gamers. And I always think about, like, I always think about, like, Tron. It's, you know, you know. <laughs> but you know how, like, you go into the video game and the game is set up to basically annihilate certain people. And I always think about, you know, this idea of of black people being a glitch, right? Our survival mm. being a glitch. Like we are a part of a system, white supremacist system, an anti-black, heteropatriarchal, you know, capitalistic system meant to annihilate black people. So our survival is a glitch. Our survival is not a a uh, expected outcome of the system the system was not designed for us to survive and it certainly was not designed for us to thrive see now you're on some like wreck it ralph i know i was thinking that too some like <laughs> matrix you just pull from like all these different like entertainment sources i can't help it i'm a nerd but i mean but it's true yeah and so i'm just thinking i'm just thinking about if we see black survival as a glitch if we see black survival in a white supremacist heteropatriarchal capitalist system as as a glitch then how do we simultaneously look at black pain and benefit from it how i don't know how i don't get it i'm asking tell me the answer i I think honestly it comes from a place of like you said of wanting to wanting to get something for yourself wanting to go viral wanting to get the clicks wanting to get the views wanting to get some type of income or benefit right and so we think oh this is my come up this is my moment to get something for myself this is my chance to overcome the oppression that that i faced for so long right i think for me and you know i don't want to be insensitive but i feel like i always think about our struggle against injustice and our struggle for liberation as being a collective one and that if we can't be free until we're all free, right? Right. And so I don't, I guess I just don't actually understand. I actually literally just in my mind don't understand how we have any conception of justice that isn't collective. Well, but that I think that goes back to what I was saying before, where I, I said, I don't think people really think things all the way through. I think there's an ignorance there of not really thinking about, well, what, okay, if, if I really want justice, if I really want to overcome, like, what does that really mean? Like, what yeah. does that really look like? Like me clicking on this link or me sharing this article or me sharing, taking this, this, this image or this video and using it as a meme to illustrate A, B, C, D, E or whatever. Does that actually really factor into my own, my own like growth right. or my own freedom or does it actually undermine it? Am I actually undermining myself by participating in these actions? And I think people don't, don't. They don't take the time to really examine themselves in that way. And it's very easy in this type of environment, in this type of society and world, the way it's set up to not to just, you know, click, like, share and keep going. Right. And not really examine what you're doing and what you're a part of. I also think that it's very desirable to be a part of the system. Like there are still a lot of black folks who want to assimilate, who want to be a part of whiteness, who, 
you know, that was something that I thought I was supposed to do for a long period of my life. I thought I was like supposed to eventually just grow up and have a white picket fence and do like, you know, white people shit. I didn't know what it was. I just knew I was supposed to figure it out, (laughs) you know, and I knew that was hella black, but I was like, that's when you get older, you just kind of whiten and then that's becoming an adult and you are respectable and all this stuff. And it's like, there, there is still this cultural, like, obsession with assimilation and this cultural obsession with respectability politics and with contorting and, and, and being, you know, something other than, other than black, other than brown, other than queer, other than disabled. And I do think that obviously that is a major, a major impact here and a major influence here. I think I just get confused because I, I see people who actually believe in collective justice, who actually believe in collective struggle who will simultaneously share a meme of Wendy Williams fainting on television. Right. And I'm like, girl, like, how? I mean, how how can they both exist? Because I do think that there's certain ways where we maybe subconsciously or as we're still learning and still growing, we're still working through processes of unlearning white supremacy. So we all are uplearning the system and we all were socialized in the same system. And so we embody white supremacist processes and systems in in some ways and we're not perfect i'm not perfect nobody's perfect but there's also ways that we consciously participate and and that's where i i I wonder how i wonder how we can think about things like prison abolition or like you know the legalization of of marijuana or thinking about education reform all these things we fight for the fight for 15 like the way we think about wages and all this stuff and this is why we continue to see large rifts between you know black elites and black upper class folks and well-to-do um like well-to-do black folks and like working class black folks and poor black folks and queer black folks you know we see all these rifts in many cases because we have a really hard time understanding that what we actually do like what we actually do in practice it has an impact on a larger system of processes. And I always wonder how, how do we, how do we reckon with that? Like, how do we reckon with our lived experiences being a part of a larger, you know, atmosphere, a larger, a larger environment of anti-Black systemic praxis? That's, that is a really, really interesting point, an interesting question. And, you know, as I think about this particular moment where we are in life, I think about, you know, we are like, we are in this social media moment, right, where we have access to everything and we share everything and we say everything is about us and who I am and what I can get in, in making me and building a brand, right? And, you know, building a platform, you know, very, very much about, you know, self but we are also in this very radical moment right. where, especially for Black folk, we we are having this like this renaissance and this rediscovery of of really being radical and saying, "I am who I am, and it's different, and that's okay." And you are who you are, and you're different, and that's okay. And we're all be, we'll all be different together, right? And support each other. And so it's a really interesting push pull 
Right. Where, you know, we see we see so much collective action going on across the country. Right. We see all this push for natural hair acceptance and, right. and being proud of who you are and being proud of your skin and, and, and whatever that looks like for you. And, right. You know, being proud of, of your sexuality and your identity and fully embodying who you are and having that kind of build up to a collective. Right. But it's interesting because like I, at the like I said, at the same time it's also very much about the individual. Right. And so I think I think that gets to the heart of, of your question of saying it's like, well then how do we how do we really look at a meme and right. sharing a meme and and not understand that that actually undermines all of that work. Right. How do we simultaneously participate in the very thing that seeks to annihilate us? Right. While trying to dismantle the thing that seeks to annihilate us. Right. And that's, I think that's something that I, I constantly struggle with. And I think, you know, as somebody who's in the academy, somebody who is technically, I guess, middle class now, which is very foreign to me as somebody mm-hmm. who grew up struggling and, you know, somebody who has worked in like corporate America and, you know, speaks with, you know, a certain diction and can move in certain circles. And I have certain access, you know, to certain you know, privileges because of my education or whatever it might be. But but knowing that I'm like a hair from being back in poverty, if any type of emergency happens, you know, I'm not, you know, generations wealthy, you know, like I'm right. not, I'm not even wealthy. <laughs> so, so like understanding that kind of like the tenuousness and that tenuous relationship. And so I just really, I don't know. I think the answer is obviously to dismantle the system, right? It's just to get at the heart of the system and just get rid of that shit. But I also wonder, you know, how we offer grace to people who are struggling with this process, with the kind of like push and pull of of one's participation in a white supremacist system and sometimes having to do it out of necessity for survival. You know, sometimes people assimilate, sometimes people pass out of necessity and survival. And then also understanding that you know, that we have to also come to terms with and grapple with the ways that we also subconsciously participate. And so I don't know. I think, I don't think we have any answers today. I don't think there's any answers to these questions. But I do think that, you know, we should call out things like the memifying of Black people, especially the memifying of Black women. I've seen a lot more memes of Black women than pretty much anybody else. I mean, I've seen more memes of Tamar, Nene Leakes, Nicki Minaj, you know, mm-hmm. and Wendy Williams or whatever. A lot more black women in memes than anybody else. And I'm like, y'all don't think there's any correlation between that and Massage Noir? You know, I just, I, I, I don't think that we even really grapple with the idea that the fact that everyone, when they use expressions, you know, when people are using expressions on the internet, they're using black women's faces and bodies and hands. You know, I just think about that. That's, I mean, honestly, you said that, and I really don't want to kind of let that breathe a little bit, because that's one of those things, like, I really want people to think about that. Yeah. Like, when people are using an image to represent themselves on the internet, and how they're feeling, or a joke, or something they think is silly, or whatever. Right. They are using black women's faces and bodies. It's Phaedra, it's Portia, it's Kenya Moore, it's everybody from Love and Hip Hop LA. Like, it's black women. It's black women. And these are men sharing it. There's everyone, all genders are sharing it. Mm-hmm. All races of people sharing it. And it's black women. And I'm like, how do we not see that as as commodifying black? And it's often them crying. It's yes. often them angry. It's often, you know, except for that Michael Jordan meme that everyone uses now, yeah. right? Where he's crying. 
but it's often, you know, black women in, in some moment of pain. And that's the meme that they're using to kind of express themselves. And I don't know. I just really wonder about how we, how we participate in that culture. And I ain't gonna lie. I got hell of those memes. I ain't gonna lie. A nigga got hell of those memes. I got a, I got a shit ton of them. Right. So I'm being critical of myself right now too. And thinking about how I participate in that too. Yeah. You know? Um, but I do think, I think it's worth, I think it's worth having the conversation. And I, and I think really at, at the end of, at the end of it all, I think what it really comes down to is, are you doing these acts out of love or not? Right. So when you're sharing William, Wendy Williams face, is that any type of loving act? Or right. Is that, is right. That, right. That's not, that's not showing any type of love or right. grace toward her. Like right. you might not like her. You might not like, you know, that person, you know, two doors down from you who right. was rude to you the other day who said something trashy or racist or, or misogynistic or whatever, what right. have you. But there's a way to approach people and come to them and be critical from a place of love. Or also is it out of love of black people? Right. 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 Out right. Of, yeah. Even just out of love for black people. Right. Versus just coming just to destroy. Exactly. Basically. Yeah. There, there's, there are different ways and we have to make sure that we are editing ourselves and watching what we are doing. I agree. Like what you hear? You can find my mom and dad, a.k.a. That Black Couple, on the web at thatblackcouple.com. You can find them on Facebook at That Black Couple, and you can find them on Instagram and Twitter at That BLK Couple. If you have questions or comments about the show, email them at thatblkcouple at gmail.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, so now it's time for the reflection. All right. And so for the reflection, we want to talk about how we've overcome anti-blackness in our own lives. Mm-hmm. And I spent a minute really thinking about that and thinking about the anti-blackness that I've dealt with within myself and kind of what I've done to overcome it and where it's come from. And when I really think about it, a lot of the anti-blackness I've had has been really subtle. I think it's all the really subtle societal things that kind of get programmed into you, you know, just growing up with within the system. As I said before, I grew up in Southern California. The place I lived was, it's basically known. You grew up in Orange County. Yes, I grew up in Orange County. Thank you. That's different. Like the Real Housewives. Yes, exactly. Um, And it's, I mean, it's known to be like a Republican conservative enclave. Right. When you think about California, it's like super democratic, but all the conservatives live like way up in the north or in Orange County. (laughs) And so, like, I live in a place where they're just, I mean, to be really honest, they're just aren't a lot of black people right there's a lot of white people and not a lot of black people you know all of them either related to you or your mom's sorority well i mean and that's <laughs> honestly and honestly that's real talk when you're a black person in orange county just to join a sorority so or go to church yeah in a, in a sorority or a fraternity or a church and you've basically crossed every black, <laughs> every person, black person within the entire county <laughs> or somebody's mama or cousin <laughs> and not even just orange county most of la county yep, too, and probably. san diego right <laughs> Sorry, we just we took a little sidestep there. Um, but yeah, so but but living in that type of environment, a lot of the anti-blackness that I got was really just from society. You know, it's a lot of the kind of generic stuff that I think a lot of people get, like all of these these stereotypical views of of what blackness means or or what black people are, or in a lot of ways also because Orange County is a, a more affluent area, it was also kind of like a classist type of examination right. of. Oh, we're, we're poor black people are like this or women that have too many children or, right. you know, all of these like 
really just terrible myopic views on black people right and and actual humanity right that when you really look at it like don't make any sense right and so for me to really try and overcome that and it's something i'm still overcoming and still working through every single day and i probably will be for the entirety of my life right it just really takes looking at the things that i think about people like right. really examining it and saying is that really true right it is am, am i taking an entire person and putting them into a box based upon three check boxes right and is that fair to them and is that something i can really extrapolate across you know an entire race of people is that really mm-hmm. accurate and i think and and we're, we were talking about this earlier i think it really just takes thinking about things a couple steps right to really undo a lot of the ignorance that we are we are taught and, right. and programmed to believe, right? And a lot of it in in that same respect is really kind of lazy mindedness. It's like we, and that's all that stereotypes really are. The shortcuts. Yeah. It's a shortcut to say, oh well, they're black, and you know he's big, so he's scary, or he's going to rob me, or she's black, and you know her butt is big. That means she's there for my consumption or she, or she's black and she has three kids. She's by herself. Oh, she must not be married. And she must, she must just be in these streets and she, you know, she's probably on welfare and she like, it's, it's taking these really simple, basic judgments or or, or facts or pieces that we can get in a split second and, and making an entire determination on a person. Right. Which, you know, is fully anti-black because we know that, that blackness is, is so is so full right. and is so vast right. that to even try and box it in like that right. is just a joke. Right, right. And, and so every time that we do that, we are just participa- participating in that same Absolutely. system of trying to limit the expansiveness of blackness. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think, like, so I think what you said is really important about, like, anti-blackness not being something that we can just overcome it's like oh i got my anti-blackness inoculation and now i'm pro-black and everything i do is pro-black and i got it and i'm good like i think it's really important that we are clear that being like being involved in a struggle against injustice and a, a struggle for liberation of all black people is a collective and continuous thing it's not something that you just say I'm doing like today and then for the rest of your life you're doing it you have to wake up every single day and decide to actively engage in a struggle for justice for all black people you know it's like that's not and the same thing with anti-blackness like it's very easy it's the world is set up in a way where it's very easy to be anti-black it's like incredibly easy to do it and there's all these opportunities to turn on your television and watch movies and shit and television shows like this is us um <laughs> and other media that 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 you know actually work to sell anti-black imagery and i'm bringing up this is us because i wrote that you article know, and people are mad at me about it just go ahead and get into it because we both love this is us <laughs> i love that show i do too and i can't wait for it to come back on because i want to see what's happening with with, with my people yeah me my too randos and all that me money. too but um Go ahead, go ahead and get into it. Well, let me just go ahead and say it. So I wrote this article about This Is Us on Watercooler Convos, and I really thought it was a very gentle article. I thought it was a gentle critique. It was. I thought it was very kind. I like the show. I love Sterling K. Brown. Everyone who knows me knows I love Sterling K. Brown. I love Susan Kelechi Watson. I love the dad who passed away. I love the kids. I like the black people. I watch, I'm Issa Rae. I watch for the black people. That's why I'm watching the show. That's why I'm watching the show. 
But I also did not like this season when Randall really was being kind of a jerk. He really was being very patriarchal. He's been, and I know that he has anxiety. So nobody, don't at me. Don't tell me he has anxiety. I understand that he has anxiety. I live with anxiety every day. I don't need a primer on anxiety. Thank you. You got a whole article on water pillow combos about that one too. (laughs) Save, Save your links. Save your Googling. I know he has anxiety. <laughs> I know what it is. I have it. <laughs> but also, I think, you know, the way that he treats women, you know, and the way that he talks to Beth and the way that he operates on the show has been really problematic this season with reference to Deja, the adopted uh, foster child, and her mother. And how he really, like, trashed Shauna, her, Deja's mother, on several occasions and to kind of just talk to her like she was just trash, like she was disposable. And, you know, a lot of people, when I said that about Randall, people were mad at me. I mean, people were, I had people threatening to like never read anything I ever wrote again. I had people who were just like, you, you can't write and you, you, do you have kids? You don't even know. And what's your life experience? I mean, it became very personal. It became very personal. And people started acting anti-black toward me in defense of these imaginary characters. People started defending Beth, who's not a real person, because they like Susan Kelechi Watson, who is a real person. They're like, Beth went to Howard. I'm like, she didn't, though. Like, Susan Kelechi Watson went to Howard. But also, what the fuck does it have to do with the characters on the show, right? Exactly. Like, so I, I, I bring that all up because I also think that there are ways that we really, like, we fight so hard to kind of fight for this respectability and this well-to-do-ness of blackness, you know, like this Jack and Jill debutante style, like assimilationist, you know, we have culture too, blackness that also reflects a way that we think that, you know, poor black folk, working class black folk aren't really worthy black folk. And that was really my critique. My critique was that, you know, that I actually really love Queen Sugar because, you know, it's a whole bunch of working class black folk on that show. And you can see in that show that there's a lot of black culture. There's a lot to the black diaspora and it's a beautiful, beautiful diaspora. And we look at, we look at this is us and you get this really flat, like we don't even know what the real, like what their house looks like, Randall and Beth's house. I don't know. We've never seen anything in there. It doesn't look like they really like living there. There's nothing special about it. It's like blackish. Like, you look at their house and you're just like, okay, thank you, Johnson family. It just looks like insert, you know, rich people, right? White house here. Mm-hmm. You know, like, and we all know that's not what black people do. We be having, like, paintings and, like, our kids stuff up in there. Like, where the blackness at? You just, I mean, it's shit like that. And I just kind of was, like, looking to see more of that with This Is Us. I understand that, like, Randall is raised by, you know, Mandy Moore. Um <laughs> You don't have you don't have to get quiet but, on the name. <laughs> but 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 I I also think that there's ways that we accept those types of portrayals. We accept those types of portrayals because in some ways we too believe that that's the type of blackness that we should aspire to. I do think that there's a lot of cases where like people were so disappointed with the Cosby show after, you know, we found out that Cosby is a fucking piece of trash because they really believed in the Cosby family. Right. That's what gets me is like people believed in the Huxtables. They thought that Bill Cosby was actually a Huxtable. They thought that the Huxtable family were real people because they were aspiring to be the Huxtables. And I'm really concerned about the ways that we see images like that 
we latch onto images like that and we use images like that and we often weaponize them against poor and working class black people in ways that don't get us any closer to justice and liberation. They're not, the, the, the Huxtables don't help us think about ways to make it so that, you know, trans women have more access to health care or that, you know, poor teens, queer teens have, have access to reliable home and shelter. Like that's not going to help us. The Huxtables ain't never dealt with that shit. So, so I don't understand how we're going to really have this conversation if all we're doing is not only are we like not wanting to have the conversation about our own complicity, but then we go and participate in the media that commodifies black folks and looks at a story like Shauna's, you know, looking at Deja. Deja is a child who's been abused. Her mother's been incarcerated and they use that to make Randall seem like a hero, a hero, a hero. Yep. Right. It's another way that they commodified her pain. And then Shauna just kind of basically faded into the background. She was a prop to make Randall look like a superstar. And, and you know, to really get back to the concept of, of anti-blackness and really kind of like, how do we get rid of it? I think, to your point, a lot of, a lot of what happens in entertainment is we get these depictions and we grab onto them. We hold onto them tight and we say, this is amazing. This is mine. It's here. And I'm so happy and I'm going to support it. That happened with, with Cosby Show. Like you said, it happened with Blackish. It's happening with This Is Us. Like we want to just valorize these people and hold on to them so tight and never let them go. But I think, I think, like you said in the piece, and like you just said a moment ago, we also now have Queen Sugar, which right. to me is, is such a disruptive force because a lot of times when we talk about entertainment, like you said, it's like we. Like, it's great. This stuff is great. But we can do better. We deserve better. And it's not to knock what's there. It's just to say, that's great. Now let's improve that and let's make it better. Let's right. make it more inclusive. Let's make it more representative. And I feel like Queen Sugar came and it really showed that, look, we can do better. Right. It, it actually It's a thing that can be accomplished, that can be on TV and people will watch it and it'll have good ratings. Right. And the critics will think it's amazing. And we don't have to capitulate to the system of whiteness. Right. To, to and we don't have to commodify our pain. Right. We can actually have the fullness of blackness. The fullness. Joy. Pain sometimes. Happiness. Love. Divorce. Children. Wealth. Struggle. Right. All of it. We could actually have all of it. And so what happens when we imagine blackness is actually having the permission to experience all of it, to have fullness? That's all I'm asking for. I'm just saying... We don't have to commodify our pain. We don't have to use our pain to participate in a system of white supremacy. We don't have to do, like, we don't have to do, Audre Lorde told us, the master's tools, right? We don't have to use the master's tools, right? So maybe I guess the conversation redounds to Ava DuVernay for everything. <laughs> Is that the answer? That's, that's always the answer. I feel like that's the answer. Just fuck it. Just let Ava DuVernay know because then that's black women's labor. I don't know. I don't know. I would I would say this Ava DuVernay as an example yeah. for everything. Can we clone her? You know, follow that example. Clone Ava DuVernay, and then split the work evenly and make sure she's remunerated, paid no. paid evenly across each of her clones. No, but you know, we watch Black Mirror, and that's coming soon. And that show has shown that cloning true. is not. That oh, hot. remember what that that Netflix show? What happened to Monday? Clones don't go well. Yeah, clones, they, they end up dying. Okay, well, we'll think about how to get Ava DuVernay to be the answer to everything. But not just her alone. She's good at picking a team. Delegate. Yes. Yes. She's the delegator in chief. Yes. Okay. Thank y'all for listening. Before you go, make sure you follow us on Twitter and Instagram at that BLK couple. 
on Facebook at That Black Couple and look us up on the internets at www.thatblackcouple.com. You can stream episodes on Google Play, Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. And you gotta rate us high, because we're petty bitches. Bye!